This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Welcome to this week's Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Rental Streets. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Rental Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains and sprockets. We're also coming to you with the help of Fly Racing. Don't forget to check out their website for all their extensive catalogue when it comes to street gear. Some really good stuff in there. My name's Adam Wheeler for this uh, week's edition of the Paddock Pass Podcast. I'm joined by David Emmett from Moto Matters and Neil Morrison, who's still in the UK, not trapped, I'm pleased to report, uh, after Silverstone and the latest round of of MotoGP. We're going to talk uh, our moments of the weekend, some discussion points from the latest round of the World Championship. And we've also got a rental street sessions with Ducati Lenovo's team's Jack Miller, where he's going to talk about the kind of setup and handlebar configuration he uses both for his on-road um, job and his off-road training activities. So uh, we'll get Jack and uh, his our recording with him on the show a little bit later as well. First of all, uh, David Emmett. Dave, how are you? Um, any further news, any further update on the new motorcycle? Because I think listeners are probably fed up with the, uh, the procrastination, the delay and uh, the general, you know, uh, faffing. Hanging about. Yes, the general faffing about, well, look, you know, the sun is shining. It might be sunny for the rest of the week. Um, I don't have anything this weekend except to watch World Superbikes um, and listen to the dulcet tones of uh, Stephen English on the on the commentary. So who knows? I might actually test a bike later this week. But um, uh, quite honestly, I mean, like one of the options is a is a second-hand, uh, a second-hand BMW GS, but there's not very many on the market at the moment. Everyone is off on their holidays on them. So I've got to wait for, for them to all come back. Please don't opt for the most boring option, Dave. And you realise you passed well beyond the, the barrier of being the fair weather rider by now i think your public uh, profile has been ruined and steve english who's that um you know yeah <laughs> steve of course missing in action today for our recording uh neil uh you're still you're still online um, i'm glad to say you're in the uk you're coming back uh, back to base in barcelona um you survived silverstone just by adam yeah yeah um survived a yeah pretty interesting weekend i guess um Thought the race was pretty good. I mean, it was great just to be at an event where you were surrounded by fans. Um, didn't quite get the uh, that impression when we were in Austria. Obviously, the two Austrian events were opened up to fans as well, but you weren't walking around kind of like the infield. Our commentary position was uh, on the outside of the track, uh, Wooker Corner, so we were getting to walk through like the sort of uh, burger vans and uh, monster stages and stuff like that. And it was rammed from Saturday. It was a really good crowd. So, um, yeah, survived that. And um, so just basically contemplating uh, dour 10-degree weather. I mean, it is still August, right? Uh, yet uh, <laughs> there's not really any sign of that here in London, I'm afraid. One day we're going to have to ask you about different uh, commentary positions because it is funny how they're all different at different tracks and stuff because, you know, a lot of the times it's just sort of in the same building as the media centre. So your view is not the same or is it almost exactly the same as it is in the media centre? Uh, but like um, in Silverstone, it's on the other side of the track. Barcelona is absolutely Jerez. magnificent up in the gods. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jerez. Uh, Jerez in some extremely makeshift sheds, um, which look like they're about to fall down. A Bruno uh, is another is another magnificent one. Misano is always a bit dodgy as well. So, yeah, I mean, you'll have to tell us uh, tell us your commentary adventures one day at the end of the year. Are you trying to pitch a new podcast series to me, Dave? Here. Because, uh... <laughs> If any sponsors out there want to get on board with uh, Neil's uh, commentary boxes uh, around the world, then you know I'm uh, I'm available for hire. Well, as long as it's as, as long as it's commentary boxes and not boxes, uh, Neil. What um, 
you know, just on that point, what's what's the most luxurious commentary position, you know, in MotoGP? I mean, what's the one where you think, oh, you know, you just kind of nestle into the chair like a pair of old slippers? Um, I would say probably the Jerez one. It's not because it's super fancy. It's just that you're on top of the grandstand looking out over the start and finish straight. And when you look out the back, you can see basically a perfect view of turn three, turn four, all the way up to turn five. Uh, I mean, that's pretty, it's pretty special. Yeah, yeah. The, the the point about the Silverstone one, if you're on the other side of the track, because you know, in the if you're in the Woodcut, um, uh, what is it, the Woodcut Lounge, whatever they call it, the the bunker that you sit in, we're sort of on the inside of that corner. But on the commentary side, you're on the other side, so you must be looking, you know, at, at Woodcut, and then you can look across back to that whole interior section as well. So you get to see an awful lot more of what's going on. Yeah, you're a little, uh, you're a little far away. At Woodcut, uh, however, you do get to see bikes hurtle around there at a fair old speed. Um, I think is the technical term. So yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Plus, you're kind of in and around, walking through the fans to get into the paddock again. So you're definitely experiencing the atmosphere firsthand. So yeah, that was pretty pretty unique for what COVID times, I guess. So what's the what's the worst place? What's the the broom cupboard of MotoGP for commentary? I mean, Dave's going to be really surprised by this answer, but uh, I would say Le Mans is pretty below par. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, nothing, it's nothing more than the, um, a porta cabin. Uh, Mizano's a bit substandard as well, just a porta cabin essentially uh, at the exit of pit lane. Uh, yeah, those two don't necessarily um, fill you with a sense of majesty and history. Um, yeah, it's kind of more like, oh, back into this little thing again. At the at the circuit to Catalonia, are you way up the top of the grandstand? Because you know, looking out from the media center, it was quite, looks quite plush up there. Like you've got a good view, and you know, it's uh, obviously you know perched quite high up above the circuit. I, I like the way you asked me this question, as if you don't know the answer, Ad, because I've sent you many messages of me doing rather rude hand gestures to you from that uh, very position. I must have uh, mentally removed them now. Sorry, but I apologize. But yes, yeah, up in the heavens up there. Yeah, that's 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 one of the better ones as well. Anyway, enough enough uh, you know windbag uh, talk. Let's talk about um you know Silverstone um moments of the weekend. Uh, well, let's go to Dave first. Dave, um you know I was working at Silverstone as well. I got back to Barcelona. It's now very uh, humid and muggy here. So if you do hear a whirring in the background, and it's a fan pretty much on full blast trying to uh, keep the temperature down. But uh, Dave, you you were in the Netherlands still. Um, you know what what kind of stood out for you from from the three days at Silverstone? I think my moment of the weekend was uh, Fabio Quartararo's uh, crash, I think, in FP2 in the afternoon with the hard tyre, uh, where it came, the rear came round on him, but tried to spit him off, didn't quite spit him off, but trapped his, uh, his foot and his ankle underneath the bike. Um, and it looked, when he got off, he was, you know, in pretty bad shape. It really looked like he was, uh, you know, potentially had broken his um, broken his ankle, perhaps hurt his ankle, certainly severely uh, injured himself, uh, and that I think is it made it clear just how fragile the whole thing is. Even though he had, I mean, at that point he was forty seven points in the, uh, ahead in the championship, um, but if it had broken his ankle uh, with back to backs coming up, he could have missed Silverstone. If it was really bad, he could have missed the next two back to back Aragon and Misano. Um, that would have been very difficult. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, the, the whole 
championship league could have evaporated as it happened it didn't um and he you know he, he came away fine he, he sprayed his ankle was j- just sprained but these little mistakes especially you know silverstone it was cold the cold wind the conditions were not the track temperatures were quite low um it just everything was just sort of on the limit and on the edge and it really showed how yeah, it ha- the the championship isn't over until it's mathematically impossible to 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 either win or lose it. Neil, what was your choice from the British Grand Prix? Uh, I think it's one of either two things. You know, Mark Marquez's 170 mile an hour fall on Friday was obviously pretty spectacular, pretty scary, and the fact that he was able to get up and walk away from that uh, was was I mean quite. Uh, awe-inspiring, but something that we come to expect from Mark. But I'm going to have to go with uh, Mark's collision with uh, Jorge Martin on the first lap of the race. Um, And it wasn't more, it wasn't for the collision. I thought it was, it was quite unfortunate because both of those guys, I think would have been right in the the podium hunt. I was really intrigued to see just what Jorge Martin could do actually, because I I rather fancied him to be maybe second or third in the race, just um, the kind of speed that he showed and what he was doing in FP4. Um, But yeah, there was obviously Martin's nudge on Marquez going through Stowe, I think, in the first lap. And then two corners later, Martin got sat up a little bit, exiting, um, what, turn nine? Uh, yeah, turn eight. Nine, turn eight, turn nine, yeah. And um, yeah, Mark, Mark obviously completely um, got his calculations wrong and uh, yeah, skittled them both down. Um, and I particularly enjoyed Martin's uh, comment afterwards. I hope he can learn from this one and improve for the future. And I thought that is a very <laughs> indicative phrase. It's a very 2021 MotoGP phrase because, well, you know, when would a rookie even dream of speaking like uh, like that to Mark Marquez? But it, it kind of goes to show where both guys are this season. Just nothing is quite going right for Mark at the moment, whereas Jorge is obviously surfing this, this wave of confidence. Can I just say miscalculation in um, uh, air quotes there? <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, it, it did look as though he, he he might have been trying to to give his uh, his countrymen a bit of a nudge. Um, and, yeah, and just, the red- just a little little love tap, just to let him know that you know, look, really, you need to be a little bit more careful because I am the world. Uh, I am a, a six time MotoGP champion. Um, uh, thank you very much. So, yeah, but um, just desserts for me, you know, like uh, not for Jorge Martin, but for Mark Marquez to actually crash doing it, it serves him right. I was, uh, I thought it was quite clear that you know Mark had been trying some things um, just to compare with the other things, and you know if those things worked <laughs> out to be better than the former things earlier used earlier in the season, then those things might be better for the rest of the season. Um, just a little private joke there on Mark's uh, debrief information trail. Uh, you know, I'd just like to point out as well, listeners, that on the Paddock Pass podcast, we, we're not advocates and we don't take joy in riders crashing and injuring and smashing themselves and other people off the track. Um, you know, when we're picking them as our moments of the weekend, they obviously hold an important narrative when it comes to the bigger picture. Um, for me, I'm going to choose um, a slightly less controversial figure in Romano Fanati um, for my kind of moment of the weekend. I think his perfect uh, set um, free practice one, uh, free practice two, well, topping every session um, and then, you know, getting that fastest lap in warm up on Sunday morning pretty much teed things up to, you know, complete, you know, a, a complete trek of dominance in Moto3 across the weekend. And, and how many times have we seen that? I have to admit that uh, I've been on deadline with a magazine on track off road has just gone online and it's still not 
completely 100% finished and I was writing about it in the, in the latest issue there and Vanati is of course the most experienced rider in Moto3 um, but I didn't have time to go through all the results to see the last time a rider did manage to finish top and win the Grand Prix in every single Moto3 outing I think potentially Joan Mir uh, well certainly I don't think any other rider has dominated Moto3 um, you know like that since Joan Mir in 2017 when I think he won 10 Grand Prix Neil's holding his finger up at me which means he's about to correct me Tune in to our Model 2 and Model 3 show later this week and uh, I'll tell you exactly oh, what it was. The consummate Pio, the consummate pro, <laughs> uh, indeed. So yeah, Romano and the Husqvarna crew, you know, they've had their, also their moments of controversy, let's say, uh, and, you know, they, that, that was a perfect weekend. So that was the, the moment for me. Moving on to a, uh, basically our discussion points um, in this show. Um, I'll go first because I think Dave's um, illustration of how Fabio Guadararo managed to bounce back for some adversity at Silverstone is a fine example of how I believe the championship's almost done. I mean, I don't know about you two, but I was watching the race and there was a real um, inevitability about it. Um, you know, once Fabio moved through to second place, you could see, you know, he was going to you know, dispatch Paul and, you know, his brother and, you know, the rest of them, there was nobody else really kind of setting that kind of formal lap times. Um, and, you know, not only did he have the Grand Prix in the palm of his hand, but it really looks like the championships head in the same way with Juan Mir and, and Peko Bagnaya struggling. Um, you know, Dave, you kindly done a blog uh, for the latest magazine of On Track Off Road and, you know, pointed this out that Mia and Bagnaya really, when they've had their off days, um, it's been pretty terrible for them. Whereas Quattararo, despite his, you know, uh, some, let's say, interesting scenes so far in 2021 with the leathers and the arm pump, um, he's still managed to keep, you know, everything pretty much stable. And as we've said before, Yamaha has been a disaster around him. And, you know, whether that, that could derail the focus or the efforts of some riders, but for him, it seems to have kind of focused things. He's been the bubble inside a bubble inside a bubble. And, um, you know, it's making him work. I think I, I cannot see how we can lose the championship now. Uh, you know, God forbid, unless he crashes and does a Jorge Martin and then breaks something and ends up in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, uh, he showed on Friday how he can lose the championship. But uh, yeah, I mean, it would take some serious effort on his part to actually do so. Uh, and I think he's going to be a little bit more careful as well, uh, just to make sure that that doesn't happen. So that's not uh, not so much during the race, not even during practice, but just uh, taking that little bit more you know margin because he doesn't need to. Uh, if my math, uh, if my mathematics is correct, then uh, he should be able to you know with third places for the rest of the season. That's it. He's he's got it in the bag, and he's already got eight. Um, was it uh, eight podiums this year? Five wins and three thirds. Uh, from 12 races so that's that's pretty good going uh, the, the averages are just really really good and the, i wrote about this last night for for my website about the the it feels like almost the chaos around him the chaos on the other side of the garage has been really it's been really good for fabio quartararo because it's sort of like concentrated yamaha's thinking all right like this is a disaster with um uh, with maverick let's just try and sort of sort him out and 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 calm that sort of situation down he's not maverick was never working on the bike the, the bike was left completely up to um uh, to quartararo uh, it also took a bit of pressure off of him as well because no one was talking about Fabio Quartararo. I mean, we were talking a bit about Quartararo, but um, there was so much to talk about in terms of the the drama with Vinales. 
that that takes a whole bunch of pressure off him, especially in that crucial period where he was building up his lead. You know, we have the Saxon ring, we have Assen, and then we have Austria. On all of those races, that was, especially the races in Austria, that was a big, big pressure there. Um, and it was also really interesting the way that he was talking about his, uh, you know, what was going on, on the other side of the garage. And he was like, basically like, I don't care. I don't care what's going on there. It's not my, it's not my business. It's none of my business. I just, it, it's completely disinterested. It, and it was, he was really quite blatant about it as well. That was what, one of the things I found most interesting. That it was like, <laughs> that side of the garage, that side of the garage. I don't care. There's no pretense of it being a team. Uh, that, that, and that I think has allowed him to really concentrate. I think um, his recovery from the crash on Friday was quite uh, Mark Marquez-esque. It's one of those moments that his rivals were probably looking at happening at the time and thinking, oh, we've got a window here. This could be our chance. This is this is the moment where it might just be blown open. And within 20 minutes, I'm not sure exactly how long it took for Fabio to get back out on track after he had the crash. But let's say it was 20 minutes. Within that time, he had basically just dispelled any kind of doubts, set the fastest time of the session, and set a, a really strong late run in FP2. And I think from that moment, that really set the tone for the weekend. Qualifying, okay, wasn't great, but the rest of the time, he just looked like he was on a on another level to the rest of the field. Um, and I think it's just, it, it, it says quite a lot about 2021. Fabio has just been the best rider and head and shoulders the best rider. I don't think there's been any doubt whatsoever. Um, we've mentioned, I think, in the past how on his bad days this year, he's got thirds at uh, some difficult tracks. Um, but when he is feeling it, he just... He, he does what he did on Sunday and there's, there's kind of like an interesting pattern to what he does. It's not like the kind of Lorenzo pull position, lead into the first corner and just pull away. He is made to work for it ever so slightly, but he's shown this year that he doesn't get flustered. He doesn't make mistakes early on when maybe the start or the first lap hasn't gone exactly to his liking. He's able to uh, basically um, compose himself very early in the race and start making uptime whenever he's find himself whenever he's find his pace and then once he hits the front you know around lap five lap six it's it's good night Vienna for everyone else um, and if you look at each of his five wins there's been that's basically how it's played out um, he's had to he's had to fight a little bit at the start but once he gets out front there's just no touching him um, and uh, I mean yeah it looks like it's it's one hand on the trophy at the moment for him two things uh, you know he has to cope with you know, he's, he's been leading the championship or he's been, you know, the favourite for the championship all year. So you think, you know, as the pressure, as the crucial moment gets nearer, is he going to explode a little bit again like we've seen in the past two seasons? Or, you know, is it just plain sailing from here on in? Um, can he be quite calm about it? And the second thing is, if we look at the races still to come in the second part of the season, Fabio traditionally hasn't been always that strong in the latter stages, it, especially with the tracks coming up that we have. I think um, last year he took a podium in Mizano uh, and also in Valencia. Um, but then the other kind of results were like 2019, but uh, the flyaway tracks. So, you know, are we heading to a couple of places where potentially Ducati or Suzuki might feel their chances of bumping him further down the order? I mean, we're heading to Aragon next. Um, and... Aragon last year was nothing short of a nightmare for Ducati. So I don't foresee Pekka Banyaya or Jack Miller or Joanne Zarco clearing off into the distance there. Um, we know that's that's another reason why I think Quadraro is 
more than likely going to take this title because you look at someone like Tranmere. I mean, he's ridden well this year, but you can't see him going on a run of winning three back-to-back races and really putting pressure on Fabio, even at a place like uh, like Aragon, where he had those two podiums last year. You maybe look at someone like Marc Marquez um, being the guy to beat there. I can't foresee any of um, Cordero's championship rivals putting a, a sort of series of six races together where they either win or finish second. I just don't think um, I don't think they're in strong enough shape or their packages aren't strong enough to do that at the moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you go to, if you look at Aragon, you've got to say um, uh, that Mark Mark has got to be the favourite there, left-hand track. Um, he loves it. He's really strong there. Uh, it shouldn't be a problem for him. Uh, go to Mizano. Well, Pekka Banyaya, maybe. Uh, second Mizano, Pekka Banyaya. I mean, Vinales was strong there, but you don't know what it's going to be like on a uh, uh, on an Aprilia. Um, uh, Morbidelli is going to be back. Maybe he'll be, because Morbidelli was very good at, M- at Mizano as well. There are so many uh, different riders. We go to Austin, and if we go to Austin, then uh, obviously, Obviously, uh, um, then obviously Mark Marquez wins as well. All of these riders are going to be taking points off of, I mean, they'll be taking points off of uh, Fabio Quattararo, but they're also going to be taking a lot of points off of uh, Quattararo's rivals. And, you know, when he wasn't winning on the podium, he's had a fifth, a sixth, a seventh and a thirteenth. Um, uh, and like fifth, sixth or seventh, if the others aren't winning, is good enough. Is just plenty. So that's that. I mean, that's that's going to be that's going to be fine. I think. I I can't see. I think it's going to be difficult for that. Just because there are so many people who are so strong and they're all taking points off each other. There isn't one rider. When it was uh, Marquez versus Dovizioso, for example, it was like Marquez versus Dovizioso almost every uh, almost every weekend. Um, that's not the case here. It's you know. You know, Juan Mir could win, Mark Marcus could win, Pekka Banyaya could win, uh, Jack Miller could win, um, who knows, even, you know, Joan Zarco could uh, could win, Polis Bargro could get on the podium. There's so much going on. Alacious Bargro has just proved that he can get on the podium. There's so much, so many possibilities. Alex Rins, it's, it's really difficult to see one person coming through and uh, really eating up a whole lot of points. With regards to how he's going to respond to the pressure, I thought it was quite interesting and quite telling. One of his first comments in the press conference after the race on Sunday, Joanne Mir, after Austria, had tried to just ratchet up the pressure ever so slightly, saying, you know, as the season enters its final stage, the pressure and pressure increases, and Fabio might find it quite hard to deal with the lead that he has. Also, the fact that he's basically the only man at Yamaha, maybe there'll be a bit of pressure there because he's like their only hope and their only focus. And Fabio just came out afterwards and said, look, I thought it was pretty funny reading those comments, um, you know, saying that I'm going to do mistakes or I'm going to have this extra pressure. Like I feel great everywhere I go with this 2021 Yamaha. When he's got that confidence in the front tire, he doesn't have to fear any track. And yes, Aragon last year was a disaster for him. Uh, both weekends, more or less, it was it was pretty bad. It's never been a great track before. But he was saying it. Uh, he was saying in the press conference Sunday, "This is the best I've ever felt. This current setup is fantastic." And Who's to say he doesn't go to Aragon and get to or get a second place? You know, uh, I just think the way he's riding, the confidence that he has, he can almost win ever anywhere. Both of you mentioned Mark Marquez as a race winner. Do we think Mark is actually in a position to win a Grand Prix now? I mean, for the last three races, both on and off the bike, he's been favouring his right shoulder. Um, I think he's had something like five offs 
uh, in the, the Austrian doubleheader as well as Silverstone. At Silverstone, he was also trying the scooter rear brake um, and he wasn't very concise or clear about the reasons for that. Um, it seemed very much like Honda asked him, to, you know, requested for him to try this uh, form of riding. He admitted he didn't feel terribly comfortable with it. Um, you know, do we see Marquez as, as a guy? I mean, Aragon, you would think would be the clearest circuit where, you know, if he's going to be competitive and going for the race win, then he's going to make it happen. Aragon and Austin, uh, you know, the, 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 there's two tracks where he is almost uh, almost impossible to beat. I mean, he, the only time he lost to Austin is when he beat himself by falling off. Uh, so, yeah, and even that. Was a was a technical problem as well, wasn't it, Dave? Yeah, exactly. It was basically it was a problem with the it was it was a problem with the engine brake. So yeah, the the, the only way you st- the only thing that can stop him around Austin is uh, is the bike. Um, uh, Aragon, I think he, he he's exceptional at Aragon, uh, and it's a left hand track. And even Valencia, you know, he's strong at Valencia as well. So he he's going to be difficult to beat there. I think uh, obviously the recent run. The- that Mark's been on does not look good. It looks like he's been having a really tough time. But when you analyse the last four races, had things panned out a little bit differently, he could have been there. I mean, he was on course to win the second race in Styria, which would have been just a remarkable thing to do considering his physical condition, considering the state of the Honda this year. He was looking really, really, really strong in FP1 before he had that massive, massive crash. Um, And even after that crash, he still would have fancied him for a podium on Sunday, um, the way the race panned out. And even looking um, back before the summer break at Assen, okay, um, qualified desperately, only finished fifth, but, you know, Finished fifth after qualifying twentieth. Oh no, he didn't. Sorry, finished seventh. Uh, but that was after qualifying twentieth. Uh, it was still like a really strong competitive ride. I think there's been definitely enough in in Marquez's riding um, since Saxon Ring um, to say that yes, he's definitely capable of winning races in the in the uh, the final part of this year. It's just that when you don't have that razor sharp focus that you have when you're in the middle of a championship battle, I think you just lose something automatically, and it just seems that Mark. There's just mistakes in his game. He's, he's just a bit ring rusty. Well, we're going to use the scooter break here on the Paddock Pass podcast just for a quick break. But when we get back, we'll be talking to Dave and uh, one of his discussion points to emerge from the Monster Energy British Grand Prix. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Myself, Adam Wheeler, David Emmett and Neil Morrison chatting over events from Silverstone. Dave, uh, one of your you know points to emerge from, from the race uh, last weekend, or the races, I should say, uh, was the subject of tyres and um, basically how it's thrown, you know, Joanne Mir, Pekka Bang Knight and several others recently, you know, really into kind of the kitty litter, you could say, uh, in terms of their championship bid. Um, we also had a question from uh, Liana Lichendru, so I apologise if I said that badly, uh, on Twitter, asking pretty much the same thing. So wh- what is going on, Dave? Is it just more inconsistency from Michelin that we're seeing? Uh, wh- what is the problem the riders are facing? Uh, it's really complex. Um, I mean, there is reason to 
suspect that Michelin, I mean, you know, the pandemic was uh, an enormous problem for all sorts of reasons, uh, including the, you know, the fact that it, it disrupted a lot of supply chains, it disrupted a lot of production, it meant uh, factories were having to make lots and lots of changes to the way that they were working, uh, j just to be able to manage uh, with the rules, uh, with, the, with the social distancing rules and all the rest of it. There were people working at home, there were people who weren't working at home. Um, this Create a lot of confusion. There was also, you know, a, the, a lot of problems with transportation. I mean, like even now, shipping is incredibly difficult because ports get shut down for uh, when there's an outbreak of COVID, and then uh, the, the, there's a whole bunch of containers get stuck somewhere, and then you can't ship stuff around the world. So th there's lots and lots of uh, of challenges which all of the which, which a company like Michelin f um, faces. So maybe that is having a quite a problem in terms of quality control, but I think more importantly, the the Michelin's have always been really, really temperature sensitive. Um, now they have Michelin have to tell the teams right at the beginning of the year what tires they're going to use for uh, every race uh, uh, throughout the year. That seems like a good idea because it allows the uh, factories to plan you, you, or, or, so they, they know what to expect going to a particular race and they know what tires they're going to have they know uh, how they're going to react so they know what to do but the trouble is i mean like last year we had a blistering hot year this year we've had a really cold windy quite damp quite miserable uh, summer and so the, the temperatures are all a bit lower than expected last year the temperatures were a bit higher than expected uh, and that posed challenges in terms of durability now we are it's posing challenges the opposite direction we have these issues with tire uh, you know with, with with tire temperature and tire wear um that the tires are dropping out of uh, uh, out of the, the sort of the ideal the perfect opt operating window uh, and that's causing that's causing real issues and everything is so close that the smallest sort of change it this narrow operating window makes it very, very difficult to actually get the, the tires right into the perfect operating window. So it, it, you have to really work on your setup to understand what uh, uh, what to do. And then you get to the race and then it's, you know, if the, if the asphalt temperature is, is two, three degrees uh, higher or lower, then you have to try to adjust that. And if you haven't been able to do all of the work that you wanted, um, uh, then you can just sort of fall out of your operating window. You can also get, because the fire, the, you know, they try to make the tires as, as identical as possible they should all be completely identical but the riders are so sensitive that they can feel very very tiny differences between uh you know one tire and another and 10 15 years ago that much you know if, if you had one tire which wasn't quite as perfect and you lost sort of you know uh, maybe five hundredths or a, a tenth a lap then you were still fourth or fifth instead of on the podium but now you're not fourth or fifth you are 15th or 16th so it all of these factors have made things a lot lot more complicated is there a quality control issue i don't know it, it I, there is reason to believe that you know it's a reason to look at it certainly and certainly some of the teams have complained about it and the riders certainly complain about it but there's lots of other factors going on making it really difficult to say yes it's uh, it's uh it's tires and, and, and no it isn't michelin did tell me that um 
they were they were seeing much higher levels of wear than they were expecting to see. But again, that can be just down to sort of temperature and the really cold wind, which was uh, at Silverstone. I think quality control has to be one of the issues, Dave. I mean, riders are being are complaining, like you say, and some of them have obviously had a. a are talking to because they're stopping short of outrightly criticizing the, the great variance in the rubber from you know uh, jack miller being a case in point i mean he was very button lipped i think on saturday after qualifying uh where he was very evidently miffed uh with the performance that he had from the michelins whereas on sunday he was able to enact a, a fantastic performance and almost made the podium um which was seemed quite unlikely uh from from his speed throughout the rest of the weekend so it, maybe the teams or, or the riders or, or, you know, the technical staff are frustrated in these fluctuations of quality, which, as you say, there are logistical difficulties that Michelin face. I mean, that has to be taken into consideration. And as we said in the, the Paddock Note Show on the Sunday, being a, a single tyre supplier is, is a thankless task because when things go well and you get everything right, then nobody really tends to credit you. Okay, maybe you have a lap record here or there. Uh, but when things go wrong, I mean, it's just the worst kind of PR. I mean, it looks like Michelin have screwed everything up, not only the championship, but a rider's uh, title plight, uh, a manufacturer's work for the weekend. And it's, um, it's, it's a very difficult situation to be in. Yeah, but once again, you have to realise that when you talk about quality control issues, it's not that like there is one tyre which is outstanding, another one which is terrible. It's just that one is really, really good and the other one is just not quite as good. So they can feel the difference between the two. You know, us mere mortals would barely be able to feel the difference between the two. But these riders are so sensitive, they can really feel uh, feel the difference. Uh, we haven't heard a lot of engineers saying that they can actually see it in the data. Because quite often, you can see it, you can see it in the data. Um, uh, and some engineers have been really quite honest and said, "No, we can't see anything at all. Um, it, it's it is just down to rider feel." But riders are so sensitive about it that they're trying to do something, uh, and it's not quite giving them the feedback. So, but like the margins are so close now that all of these things are you know. Know, uh, are making a difference everything the whole field is so close we had the the eighth closest top 15 again uh you know four of the of the closest top 15s have been this year and so the, these tiny differences really exaggerate um even the tiniest difference the tiniest detail that, the, that there is and, and they punish you if you haven't don't have everything absolutely perfect you're really punished quite badly Neil, you wrote a pretty interesting article a couple of years ago for Motocourse on the Michelins. What's what's your view on the situation and the way it's transpiring in 2021? It's uh, Yeah, it is interesting. I think when Michelin came back in um, as a sole tyre supplier to MotoGP in 2016, there was a lot of quality control issues in the first year, maybe the first year and a half, two years perhaps, it's even, it's even worth saying. Um, and just hearing and listening to riders' comments hearing quite closely. Um, it did seem that that sort of dried up after, you know, the end of 2017. Um, it seemed that quality control wasn't such an issue. Um, but uh, but this year, you just, you have to say that it, it has to be. I know I completely agree with what Dave said. I think um, he's articulated the, the, the point really well. Um, everything is a lot closer. Uh, even, this, even the slightest differences and dip changes in feel are more keenly felt now um, however just the just the number of complaints that you hear even when riders don't mention it and you speak to a crew chief or an engineer 
um, in just conversation, there is that thing that just comes up that, yeah, in that race, actually, he had a bit of a duff tire or the tire just wasn't really responding as it should have done. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite confusing because, you know, Mitzlan obviously is, um, you know, they know what they're doing, but um, it just does seem to be a, a bit of an issue with the consistency of the tires here. And uh, I mean, um, Jack Miller said he had two soft tires in qualifying that didn't uh, that didn't work as he was expecting them to. Didn't give him any sort of feel. Um, you look at Pekka Banyaya had one of the strongest paces that we saw all weekend and dropped away from the leading group like a stone. Ended up finishing I think 14th or 15th, like really low down. John Mir had a big issue with the front tire. Said it was just basically unrideable by the end of the race. And I think um, there might even have been. Um, you know, some serious, some some quite severe issue, severe tire wear with the with the front. So, um, yeah, as you say, Ad, it has to be there has to be some kind of issue with with the quality control at the moment. But um, as to what that is, um, it remains slightly mysterious. The, the difficulty of pinning pinpo of you know pinning it down to quality control is, for example, Juan Mir. If you look at Juan Mir versus uh, Fabio Quartararo, they both used the soft front. Uh, Quartararo um, made his way to the front quite quickly, was careful in his overtakes, uh, and once he was clear, he could go off and ride his own lines. When you can ride your own lines, you can preserve your front tyre. You can manage the. You can just basically manage the whole thing. You don't have to stress things. If you need to back off a little bit, then you can back off a little bit. You can just you know do all your own thing. Mir was in the middle of a group, so he was battling all the time. And the thing about the soft tyre is um, it's not as stiff. And so once you start loading it, once you start having to brake, having to push it into corners to try to get past someone or having to push into corners to defend uh, against someone, then you're stressing it much more and much more differently and certainly much more differently than you did in the pra in practice. Um, and so the tyre is always going to respond differently. Now, does that mean that uh, Mir didn't have a duff tire. No, you can't tell. We, you just don't know. You really need to see. I mean, like you or I will not be able to say because we can't actually see the data without actually talking to his crew chief, without looking at the um, looking at the data, actually seeing whether the drop off is much bigger than you would expect given the circumstances. Um, th that's really difficult. But there, there again, all of these differences. The difference between being able to ride out in the front and and having to battle. That's a huge difference for the stresses that go into the tire, and you have to sort of take that into account in the way it, re it reacts, and it becomes a lot more complicated. Another thing that you maybe wouldn't consider, but it's something that you you've started to hear a lot more in the, the Michelin kind of MotoGP era, is just how sensitive these front tires are whenever riders are in a group. You were mentioning there, David, about the need to maybe break later to defend or try to overtake someone in front, but also just the fact that you're not getting any clean air in front of you. There's no, you're basically in a bike slipstream and the heat from that bike in front, you're not getting any clean air to sort of cool the front tire down. And that's caused a lot of difficulties with riders riding in groups in the Michelin era um, in recent times. Um, and yeah, what, what Mir was doing in, on, on Sunday, you know, he, he didn't really have any clear air at any point because he was mired in that sort of, uh, what, six rider, five for second um, for the most part. Um, so yeah, it was another thing that Jack Miller mentioned as well. I think um, Miller made a bit of a mistake early in, early in the race, was back in seventh, and there was a, a period where he was closing on the five for a second, really looked like he had so much in hand over them, but said that sort of advantage completely disappeared once he was on the back of the other guys, just because, well, you would assume 
he doesn't have that clean air in his front tire and everything starts to starts to feel a little bit different. Yeah, the, these tires these tires are incredibly sensitive to temperature, and uh, you know that can be up and down if it's a little bit cooler, if it's a little bit warmer, uh, or if you are uh, stuck behind someone, uh, sort of you know, and unable to cool your tire down. I mean, you know, when it comes to a temperature and operating margins, it's it's still a case where you'd expect a level of return or quality from the Michelins. If you think of Miguel Oliveira's front tire in you know the Grand Prix of Austria, I mean that the chunk in there was uh, pretty unbelievable in the images that surfaced. And of course, you know riders are asked not to really talk about some of the obvious problems that come from the rubber. It's um, but it is frustrating, you know, when it does ruin their ruin their uh, their races and and their championship bids. Uh, I'm going to say asked again with uh, with uh, air quotes because they are um, uh, asked with asked with extreme prejudice not to talk about it. So um, uh, I, I don't think uh, the last time I heard um, Michelin has never actually fined a rider for um, uh, for, for complaining about tyres, but um, I do know that they would have a little bit of a word in their ear and some fairly stern words. And of course, it's also in the rules now that they're not allowed to, riders are not allowed to complain about the championship and spec tyres are part of the championship. Yeah, they might not be, uh, they might not have fined the rider, but uh, you would bet quite a considerable amount of money that they have administered a beating or two around the back of the garages. <laughs> <laughs> I say, yeah. There is, there is a rumour that um, in another championship, um, uh, the single tyre supplier used to keep a uh, supply of uh, tyres which were well past their sell-by date at the end of a um, uh, at the back of the truck, and uh, anyone who was found complaining about tyres in uh, in one particular race would find himself with one of the, the um, dodgy uh, pile. Well, uh, <laughs> yes, the, 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 yes. Uh, not so much the Saturday night specials as the uh, as the seven year old specials, um, uh, which would um, not quite function up to spec. I say bring back the uh, the nine, late nineteen eighties uh, tire favoritism, where some riders got the good stuff and uh, everybody else kind of had to make do with the uh, over the counter jobs uh, to race a you know a five hundred cc two stroke that wanted to throw you off at every corner. The the, the Tony Elias special. The, um, uh, <laughs> Because obviously, like he got Danny Pedrosa's tire when Danny Pedrosa didn't want it, and that was why he—that um, was how he ended up winning at um, Estoril in 2006. Well, we've been talking about Jack Miller a little bit. Um, just before we head for another quick break, uh, we've got the rental street sessions, of course, where we talk with certain Grand Prix riders or superbike riders about their setup when it comes to their race bike, but also some of their off-road activities. And uh, we managed to grab just five minutes with Jack in Silverstone, and here's what he had to say. Tell us a little bit about, you know, are you particular with your setup off-road and, you know, how is that kind of influenced into what you're doing in MotoGP? Definitely. Um, definitely I've got my setup that I know that I like in, in the off-road, uh, especially in the off-road bike. I mean, I know what I do with every bike I buy. And then for sure, it translates over. I mean, the you got to be comfy in your cockpit, basically, is what I like to put it as. And, you know, I like to, with the, with the road bike, we have a lot more options, so I say there's a lot more freedom there, but uh, I generally know where the feel, basically, I can jump on any bike sort of and, and, and feel where I need my handlebars put, um, how I like them. And uh, likewise with the with the motocross bike, I can sort of eye it off when I'm sat in the seat and sort of eye it off and know exactly sort of the angle I want my bars rolled back to and and sort of where I, where I need them. Are you quite fussy on the bend off road because you know definitely yeah if you get riders like you know I'm a, I'm, I'm, like I'm a 999 999 <laughs> guy uh hands down um that's me that's all i'll buy 
Um, once I found that bend, uh, you know, I used to run, uh, let's say, not the, the crossbar, but just the, what do you call it, your tapered bar kind of thing. But then uh, once I found the 999s and the way that they bent back towards you a little bit more, that was me. I was like, that's my bar. And ever since then, that's all I put on my motorbikes. Jack, when it comes to setting up the road bike, um, is it like a pretty big job? Not too much more so in the MotoGP because we've got so many options whether it be most of the, for example your street bikes and stuff like that when we go ride a super bike you, you can roll your bars around to where you want them that's it but when you come to MotoGP you can roll your bars around to where you want them you can you know go two degrees uh, two mil forward two mil forward you can space them out from the actual fork because they're on the fork leg and then you can also change the way the angle of which they come off the fork leg so I run basically like a standard what it is a standard uh, bend off the fork or off your uh, clamp on the fork fork leg so but definitely like I said uh, same on a motocross bike so you sit on a motocross bike you can understand you know where your handlebars are sort of sitting you sit on the bike you sort of put your arms up and hold them and you say okay that's about right and especially with your levers and stuff like that get them in the right position and it's the same with uh, with a road bike um, I go up sit on the bike okay where would I like them I'd like to have the boys sort of nip them up so they're kind of firm but then I can sort of just push them into the point where I want that's it pretty much and then I grab the brake lever especially brake lever on the road bike is the most important one and I can put that in the right spot and adjust it to where exactly where I need it pretty much straight away but that's just something you pick up from I guess from years of experience what about on pump in Mary GP? I mean is that something you could tweak with the bars something you can feel or I've tried to more, more so with the seat because the bars are kind of hard to bring towards you um, so it's more of a seat moving yourself forwards and having more of a bend in your arm so that or relying more on your, your seat so the backstop on the seat moving that forward so that you can sort of push your ass against something and take some of the load off your arms but then with that you got to pull anyway because the bike's trying to wheelie all the time so you're trying to pull yourself up and over the front to sort of keep the wheelie down and uh, get it in the get your body in the right position so it is i mean as we're seeing more and more guys struggling the faster and, and uh more powerful the brakes are accelerating and stopping so you know so it's your bars aren't just something you're hanging on to is it i mean it's no, going to no. be really special setup. definitely definitely you know you need to be comfortable um because you know you're there for about an hour more or less just under and like you said the, the forces that are going through i've seen some videos of guys on supercross that have had like g uh g meters and that on the body throughout a supercross lap and i'd love to see you know what the force is through arms through legs through your shoulders everything on a on a, on a moto gp bike because i think it'd be pretty astounding what you put through, what you actually see is put through the body both accelerating and decelerating Cheers, good time, Jeff. no worries thank you Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. So we're here again with the final section of this week's Paddock Pass podcast. Adam Wheeler, David Emmett, and Neil Morrison. Neil, we're coming up to your discussion point from the British Grand Prix, and you'd like to talk about a certain Catalan and a certain Italian factory, I believe. 
Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Ad. Um, and uh, the certain Catalan is the guy that finished in third. Um, Alessio Spargro, I think, um, incurred the sort of disdain of uh, a lot of casual hunters and watchers and maybe even journalists and commentators and podcasters alike uh, by saying that he was, you know, among the among the, the, the strongest riders in the world. Um, no, it, look, it looks like you're looking into the Zoom camera, but I can't work out if you're staring at me or Dave or just generally. I, maybe. I, I, swear I'm, I swear I'm cleaning my camera in my uh, webcam. It's not because I'm pointing at either one of you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he finally, he delivered. He made good on uh, on his claims. And um, I think when you look at pretty as a whole this year, it's clear that they have done some pretty remarkable things. Um, I mean, it was only a few years ago uh, that they were the whipping boys of the class. I don't want to be too strong, but in some ways it just seemed a bit farcical. You wondered what were they doing in MotoGP when it just seemed to be quite a haphazard operation. There was lots of potential, I think, since 2017 and, and the RSGP really became its 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 own bike. Um uh, I guess that was 2016. From the end of 2016, it was clear there was potential there, but uh, disorganization, mismanagement, all just seemed to hold the the project back. And you you really did wonder whether they would ever get past that. But it does seem that um the hiring of Massimo Rivola at the end of 2018 has uh, has added a great deal of organization there. I think they've been quite smart with some of their recruitment in terms of engineers from um from Formula One, also from rival factories. Um and uh, you know the RSGP is a is a really good bike. Um one MotoGP rider who will remain unnamed was uh, was saying about this at Silverstone just how good he thinks the Aprilia is, um, and we know that Espargaro obviously is not uh, a Mark Marquez, um, he's not a Fabio Quartararo, he's not a guy that's won a copious amount of races in his career. In fact, he hasn't won any races. Um, so the fact that Espargaro, who is a very good rider, but maybe not one of the absolute elite riders, has been producing the kind of performances that he has, I think it speaks uh, it speaks volumes for the bike. Um, and indeed, I was talking up some numbers earlier. Um, 2019, if you took every time that Espargaro finished the race, on average, he was 25 seconds behind the race winner. Uh, 2020, if you took every race that he finished, he was 17 seconds behind the race winner. This season, you take every race that he's finished, 8.6 seconds behind the race winner. And that basically is offset quite quite deal by um the austrian gp where he finished 21 seconds off so take that away and it's you know you're looking at six seconds on average behind the race winner this year that is a remarkable achievement for uh aprilia from where they where they were and where they are now i think it's uh it's, it's pretty impressive yeah for me there are two key um moments or two key changes which sort of revolutionized the the the, the program the first was uh, the hiring of Massimo Rivola just because um, it meant that, I mean, Romano L. Bassiano is a very good engineer, but he was never a very good manager. Um, and it meant that Albaciano could concentrate on the bike and Rivola could just get on with um you know managing the team all of the, the all of the practical stuff uh, all of the stuff which basically albaciano wasn't very good at and didn't uh, didn't enjoy um it also gave albaciano more time to work on the bike so that was like that that was one big thing and the other big big change was obviously the change of engine configuration from what is it i think uh, 72 or 75 degrees to um uh, to a, a 90 degree v twin that made a huge huge difference as well yeah those yeah sorry yeah v twin what am i 
like v4 that's right because um it gives you a lot more freedom in terms of firing configurations uh you know um uh, it gives you and that allows you to control torque much better so you can actually control the way the engine feels the way the engine responds you can control the end the 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 power delivery just sort of mechanically not just with electronics but also just just plain mechanically with the way that you do it and the, and the changing things around is is then becomes less difficult so it it made for a huge it, it freed them up to um, make a big step forward. And you saw, obviously, 2020, the bike was the first year of this V4, of this 90-degree V4. Um, that was a big step forward, but the first iteration of a machine is always, there's always lots of problems that you sort of forget and don't realize and don't you don't realize until you actually get there uh this second uh, version is much more of an evolution they've polished out a lot of the problems and it's really looking like a fantastic bike i mean there's obviously some very clever people at pretty and like your statistic illustrated neil i mean they've made vast forward steps but you know when it comes to the riding personnel itself i'm sure there's a great many people who scoffed at alessia spargaro's claim that he was one of the top three riders in, in motor gp and you know ironically enough it turned out that he would be you know one of the top three riders in motor gp on sunday at least uh you know I, my personal opinion is i've struggled to rate alesh i mean for somebody who's never actually won a grand prix or a championship you have to question how much uh, experience he's going to bring to a project for getting that final few percentage required to you know take on the likes of a company like hrc or yamaha or even the suzuki's um you know as, as a as a obviously to have the career he's had in MotoGP he obviously brings something to the table i mean he seems to be a very good team player he seems to motivate a lot of people around him i mean i would point the finger at him and say he seems the perfect second rider the the perfect development rider for the the amount of different material and machinery he's raced in his career um you know i think as you pointed out in your blog for the magazine neil which was also on aprilia you know he maybe had uh the harshest part of the spotlight this season really with lorenzo salvadori coming in um and really you have to criticize aprilia's recruitment when it comes to their riders and how they dealt the situation with their testing role uh, how they've left everything so late uh, that's still one weakness that needs to be corrected but we're recording this podcast on a tuesday after silverstone and maverick Vinales is actually already on the rsgp uh you know doing some laps in Mizano, and you know that really could be the final part of the jigsaw for Prettier to maybe catch the likes of KTM and supersede the Austrians. Yeah, I think what you were saying there, I had one of the points that you just mentioned there. Um, I'd like to touch upon that a little more. I remember doing some research before the season was starting and trying to come to some sort of conclusion about what Prettier would do this year. And I just looked at their sort of field rider recruitment at the end of last year where they tried to sign Marco Bezzecchi, they tried to sign... Uh, Joe Roberts. Joe Roberts. Yeah, there was a host of names who would, who would just turn in the turn the seat down, and uh, then there was the kind of strange thing where Bradley Smith left and Savadori. Links <laughs> and yeah, Savadori ended up being the uh, the second rider, and I I just remember thinking like, no matter how good the bike is, this is going to massively hinder them because essentially they're working without. I know Davizioso was testing the bike, but from what Spargo has told us this year, it's not like he's made any massive inroads or he hasn't certainly been offering real development direction i don't think um it's more just been a case of him trying to get up to speed with it um when you consider that espargo has been riding with savadori who to his credit has had some good performances this year but he's not an elite level rider 
when you consider that imbalance in the team and then the fact that there's because Salvador is racing full-time now, there's not really a full-time test rider there doing work behind the scenes. I think it's it's all the more impressive that they've managed to do this, um, to put the season together. I mean, before this season, there was four occasions in the four-stroke era, all the way back 2002 to 2020, four occasions that a, a pretty rider had finished within 10 seconds off the, uh, the race winner of a MotoGP race. And now, uh, what, 12 races into this year, they finished... Uh, nine times uh, less than ten seconds behind the race winner, so I think all things considered, it's um, it's it's pretty pretty cool, pretty impressive. Um, and Romano Albasiano was talking back in Austria in the manufacturers press conference that uh, Dorna put on every year, and he was saying that probably for the first time in in the kind of modern day, uh, a Prelia MotoGP product uh, project, uh, they've got a stable base now where they can refine it. From now on, they're not having to make these big changes, redesign an engine, come in with a new bike. This is a really strong base and they can just refine it from here. And they now have Maro Vinales, who, as we know, is one of the fastest riders in the world. So you have to say the future looks pretty bright. Dave, uh, Maverick's been on the bike uh, today in Mizano. Uh, the first time I think he's raced European machinery since 2013 when he won the Moto3 Championship for KTM. Uh, what, what can we expect? I mean, we've seen pictures on social media. We've seen video clips. I mean, we've yet to hear any feedback uh, from Maverick as to what he thinks of the motorcycle. But, um, you know, if you had to put your money, what would you say? Is he going to be competitive from the off? Is there a lot of work to be done? What, what are your feelings? I mean, based based on looking at a, a one-minute video clip on Twitter, um, uh, so which is a sizable caveat, he looked a little bit uncomfortable. Um, it was also maybe his first, just his first or second run, so obviously that is going to be an issue as well. Um, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't expect a great deal straight away. I would be. In, I'm, I'm sort of hoping. Uh, that Aprilia will organise a, uh, a Zoom debrief with uh, Maverick tomorrow the way that they did with Dovicioso. Uh, uh, no idea whether they will. Uh, I'm also sort of asking around a few places trying to get some times out of um, uh, uh, out of it. But then again, it, you know, it was a private test. So there's no, it's quite often there is no sort of public timing uh, available. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to take a little bit of an, and it's going to take him a, a bit of adapting because he's ridden the Suzuki and he's ridden the Yamaha. They're both inline fours, uh, you know, big high course uh, corner speed bikes. The Aprilia is less of a corner speed bike. It, it has good corner speed, um, but it's it, it's a different configuration. It needs to be ridden in a different way. He's going to take a little work, a little while to get up to the speed. I think we're going to see him on the bike quite quickly. Um, I think he's going to be. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure we'll see him in Aragon. Uh, maybe Savadori sort of sits that one out because obviously he couldn't race because of his uh, uh, the the pain of his ankle. Maybe he sits that that one out and he gets replaced by Vinales um, at Aragon. Uh, maybe it will be Misano uh, or perhaps even Austin that we get to see uh, Vinales. But um, I think it's... I think we will see, we'll definitely see him before the end of the year on the uh, on the Aprilia and it's going to be interesting to see how it works out. 
One of the first things that came to mind for me uh, when I saw the images was Jorge Lorenzo and how he needed to work a lot with Ducati to find the right kind of setup and positioning on the motorcycle. I mean, he was trying everything from tank padding to seat padding to try and, you know, uh, correct his posture, if you like, to get the right kind of balance and feeling on the motorcycle. Watching Maverick on the Aprilia, this seems far more squat and compact and quite a beefy motorcycle. I I wondered if, you know, he... That might be a factor he's going to have to get used to and might require, you know, substantially more testing mileage. Yeah, Alicia was talking about this over the weekend and said that um, said that RSGP is probably, of, of all the sort of uh, uh, V4 bikes that are on the grid, um, it's, it's the one that's most compatible with a, a kind of Yamaha riding style. But then, you know, Finales isn't a, isn't a, a stereotypical Yamaha rider, you would say. Um, one thing I think that he is going to have to get used to is that, you know, the Aprilia's aero, aero package is huge. Um, obviously, it creates a lot of downforce. And I think, as Spargrove said, it did take him quite a bit of, you know, they had the the, the benefit of preseason, private preseason testing before he we went to Qatar for the official preseason test. He said it did take him some time to to get used to that, to adapt his riding style to that. Um, and he said that's one of the one of the key things that Vinales is going to have to try and get his head around. But, um, you know, wherever Maverick's gone in the past, though, he's been able to adapt to new machinery, uh, new classes with really, really impressive speed. Um, so it wouldn't surprise you to see him do the same with the Prudia. I do remember that um, uh, Dovicioso, uh, when we talked to Dovicioso after his first test on the April, he said, you know, the, basically the first day he just spent uh, fiddling around with his riding position and, and getting everything set up perfectly so he could actually be comfortable and understand the bike. So I think this, again, this is going to be, uh, a, 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 I won't say a big thing. I think it's going to be significant, uh, a significant, something significant which he's going to have to try to deal with. Just to wrap up things uh, on the Paddock Pass podcast, we love to get questions in from Twitter, um, listeners, followers of the podcast. And we've got a couple here we'll like to rattle through very quickly. Um, I'm not sure who wants to take this on first, but Sean Hanlon has said to us, or asked us rather, Paul uh, and his form on the Honda in Silverstone. Is this like a new dawn, a new beginning, or is it merely something that kind of cropped up uh, from that particular circuit? I think that it popped up from that particular circuit because all of the Hondas were quite good there. Uh, it, it suited the, the nature of the track suited the Honda. Um, and I think there will be other tracks. I think, you know, Paul could go really, really well at Aragon. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me to see him in the running for a, uh, for a podium again at, at Aragon. Um, but then it wouldn't surprise me to, if he got to say Misano, um, or, or even Austin and really, really struggled again. So it, I, I think it's a bit early. I think it's very good for his confidence. It was just what he needed. Um, so I think he's going to make a, a, a step forward, but I don't think he's going to be sort of challenging for wins uh, anytime soon unless the conditions fall his way. Neil, uh, Kaneda on Twitter has asked about Suzuki's, um, well, the rumours around Suzuki that they're going to look for a team director or team manager next year. Um, I think Simon Crafar on the TV broadcast in Silverstone pretty much uh, ruled out uh, Wilco Zielenberg being in the running. I believe he still has a two-year contract with Petronas or with Yamaha. So he's not going to be there. There is talk of maybe somebody like Livio Supo, uh, former you know director of operations or whatever his job title was at HRC. Um, and of course, Jigassi coming back. Uh, do Suzuki need a new leader um, and you know is it likely to happen do you think I think yes they probably do le- uh, need a leader I think the kind of the, the current setup that they have um, basically 
was the best answer possible for the situation that they found themselves in at the start of January. Uh, they didn't really have a great chance to recruit uh, the ideal candidate at that moment. And there was no point in getting the wrong candidate in when there was already a pretty good existing atmosphere, a good bike, um, and two pretty satisfied and content riders. Um, but I think um, Shinichi Sahara, who is the project leader and who heads their seven-man management committee, which is how they're sort of running the team and, and the kind of factory affair at the moment, he admitted over the weekend that um, he just doesn't have enough time to do certain aspects of the job that Brivio would have done. And, you know, Brivio had his fingers in all sorts of pies, but Sahara is so technically minded and so involved with the technical aspect of things that the day-to-day -day running of the team is just, it's a, it's a kind of added stress that uh, he doesn't necessarily have time for. So I do think um, Suzuki will probably address that. The Zielenberg thing is interesting because although he has told, I think, Simon Crefar um, in a conversation that he's got a contract for the next two years, it wasn't, that wasn't included in the Petronas press release that uh, came over the weekend in which they confirmed their exit from MotoGP. Obviously, um, there will be a new structure which takes over the, the satellite Yamaha team next year. And in the press release, it was said that Razlan Rizali and Johan Stigefeld would both remain in that squad. But there was no mention of Zielenberg, even if he had a multi-year contract. So, um, yeah, I think I think Zielenberg would be the ideal candidate. Super, I'm not so sure about. Um, but I do think that Suzuki are, well, they're going to discuss the possibility of, of trying to replace Brivio. Um, but yeah, who it is uh, remains unclear. Yeah, Zeelenberg has been a Yamaha man for a very, very long time. So it would be quite a big move for him. And the craziest um, the craziest rumor I heard was that David Abrivio would be back next year. But that just seems completely bonkers. I can't imagine that. I think that was just a, a moment of madness in the uh, MotoGP uh, uh, knitting circle um, uh, rumor mill. Well, Alex Rins was asked about it. He said he was uh, pleased to see Rubio making a visit in Austria um, and maybe had some impact on his performance because, uh, you know, we know he has previous form at Silverstone, of course, but to go to that second place uh, was uh, impressive stuff. Lastly, we've got a question from RPM Racing um, just on the subject of the yellow flags. I mean, it's obviously a, a subject, a, a theme where riders are seeing their last or, you know, the wisdom of said, trying to push for your final qualification lap in the, the dying minutes of the session when you could be a victim of the yellow flags has to be brought up, I feel. But, uh, you know, it's, it's something realistic now where if somebody does have an accident, then, you know, it kind of wipes out the rest of the qualifications for everybody else. I mean, could, could we pause, in theory, the clock for, for yellow flag incidents? You know, if we're in the last two minutes of, uh, I don't know, Q1, Q2, uh, you know, could, could is it impractical or unrealistic to you know take into consideration basically the dying seconds of a session uh, the man from the tv says no um everything is fixed by the tv schedule so there, there's no room for overrun uh so no though you can't add uh, go on adding time i think what you see is because what you saw to an extent in moto 3 was the same you saw lots and lots of riders hanging around waiting to get a toe in qualifying and the clever riders would go out at the start of qualifying uh, you know at the start of qualifying early on push for a lap then you see especially like in, in fp2 and fp3 um 
go out early, set your time, and then you can get on with uh, just working on setup and not going so fast. And then that robs the other riders of their opportunity to try to steal a toe off of you. And I think this is something that we're going to see that uh, riders are going to have to plan their, uh, have a bit more of a strategy and, you know, not just uh, dive straight in and, and wait until, you know, build up faster, 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 faster. Try and push hard on the on the first lap, and then just wait and see what happens on the second uh, on the second run. And if your second run gets taken away from you, well, that's a, that's a shame. But just make sure you're fast enough on your first run. Dave, you more than anybody else should know that the best philosophy in life is to stick it to the man. Even though I, <laughs> even though I'm sure that the uh, the Dutch, you know, Eurosport com- commentary and TV coverage is all the poorer for you not being in pit lanes. So some some contra- conflicts of interest there when it comes to the big bad TV world. Neil, any thoughts on the yellow flags? Because, you know, it's something, you know, commentating on Moto2 and Moto3, especially, uh, you know, something you'll have to deal with. Uh, I'm sure you've been kind of shaking your head at some of the tactics employed by the riders who have then had their best efforts ruined and maybe not been as far up the grid as they should have been. Yeah, I mean, I think the yellow flag thing is 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 there for a reason and it is to, it's to make sure that riders uh, slow down and take a little more care whenever... They see the flag displayed. Um, however, the sort of the the number of times that you see riders set personal lap times that are the best times of the session, especially at the end of qualifying, and, and then that they're then cancelled, uh, it shows that it's not really having its uh, its desired effect, um, which is to get riders to slow down. It's a safety thing, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a really tough one to know where to take or how to approach it. Um, I, I still haven't been quite smart enough to think of a, of, a, of a solution or how to improve on the current. Uh, I, I can see the intentions and the intentions are, are sound, um, but at the practice, it still needs some kind of refinement at the moment. And uh, I think I might need to uh, to retire to my uh, to my drawing room and to chomp on a big cigar and have a glass of brandy to to find the, the, the true solution for this. Now, it's kind of disappointing that you haven't come up with a solution. Um, you know, I, I think I think it's a bit of a poor show, actually. And in fact, you've got two yeah, days. You've, you've had 30 seconds, Neil. Come on, you've had 30 <laughs> seconds. You've got two days before our follow-up show to come up with a, a, a solution to fix everything in MotoGP. So we're looking forward to hear in your 96 point plan moving on guys just to, just to wrap things up again for the second time um winners and losers from the weekend uh you know let's let's have a think about who really kind of took something positive away from silverstone and who really dropped the ball uh for me i have to say peko bangnaya just cut a very forlorn figure uh, after the british grand prix for a rider that was coming up really looking to put himself into contention but you know maybe realistically one of uh, Fabio Quartararo's closest challenges um you know he, he that that finish I think it was 14 he barely collected any points from the Grand Prix I think that pretty much counts him out and he admitted as much in his media debrief on Sunday so he's got to be the loser and for me I'm going to say for the winner Yamaha because uh you know they've been one of the losers for me for most of the season really just in terms of not only the the mess that they've been in but the way they've been handling it and there was you know a part of me also that saw some of the team celebrating Fabio Quartararo's success on Sunday and you had to wonder 
you know, there, there must be a strange feeling in the camp whereby they have a fantastic set of results and a, a tremendous athlete and motorcyclist in their midst, but then also how they could have let things fall to such a degree where they're having to find, you know, riders to slot into saddles, um, you know, and having to, you know, cope with the fallout of a man management situation that wasn't pretty for MotoGP. So there's my efforts. Dave, on to you. Um, I, I mean, in terms of losers, it, it would be it would uh, be tempting to uh, say uh, Juan Mir because he lost just so many points to Fabio Quartararo. But I think I'm going to go with uh, Mark Marquez just for that incredibly boneheaded move into uh, uh, on Jorge Martin. Uh, also, that massive, massive crash. This was a rough weekend where he could have come away with a really, really strong uh, result, but just. A really stupid move, uh, 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 and he doesn't. And I mean, winners uh, apart from Romano Fanati, it's hard not to look past Fabio Quartararo just because you know forty-seven points going in, sixty-five points coming out. The, he he has, um, should we say, about six fingers on the title. Um, uh, he, he, he's just looking very, very strong. He's very, very calm. Uh, I disagree slightly with the, um, uh, for all the reasons I, I said earlier about the chaos on the other side of the garage. The chaos on the other side of the garage has been great because it's allowed uh, Fabio Quartararo to just get on with his job and his job is to win the uh, 2021 MotoGP Championship and he's doing a very fine job of it and he just had such an outstanding race at Silverstone. They're still well on course to win the Triple Crown. If they win the Triple Crown, who cares about all the chaos going on on the other side of the garage? Uh, if I was to go with my winner and loser, um, you know, obviously you both make uh, very good points. Uh, I guess we've spoken about Aleish already and Aprilia. Uh, so I'm going to go with Paul just because he was so depressed and so down in Austria in both races. He said one of his performances was embarrassing, finishing over 30 seconds off the race winner. Um, but he scored a pole position here, which was uh, one of the more surprising pole yes, positions. Yes, that was a good show. In modern times. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you into a little secret, dear listener, but on our sort of private WhatsApp group, we were kind of uh, sneeringly taking bets on how long it would take Mark to uh, to get past Paul in the opening laps because Paul has looked pretty loose, it has to be said, at the start of races this year. He's clearly been uh, pushing to stay ahead of his teammate um, by any means, but tends to make quite a few mistakes when he's trying to do that. And he actually rode really cleanly um, in the first couple of laps and, and led quite convincingly. Ended up finishing fifth best result of the season. So I think Paul Sparger deserves a, a special mention. And with, with regards to losers, uh, I'm going to have to go with Miguel Oliveira. Uh, I mean, there's just something not right there. I mean, this is a guy who looked imperious back in Mugello, Catalonia, uh, Saxon Ring. He was just, you know, riding a real wave. And, and since the summer break has resumed, we've just not seen anything from him. I know he had that crash in uh, free practice back in the, the first Austrian race. And you have to imagine that that's causing him some kind of, some kind of um, discomfort still um, for Oliveira to be, what, 16th? I know the KTM's had a tough weekend, couldn't get any real traction. Um, but still, for, for Oliveira to be 16th, 10 places behind Timia Bindu, you have to imagine that physically there's something going on there. Um, and he's just lost a bit of confidence. Um, he, he looks like a completely uh, different figure from the one that we saw towards the end of the first half of the season. 
Quick shout out for Ikaralika uh, Likwana as well. Uh, you know, seventh is just an outstanding ride in the dry uh, on his own. Just did really, really well. And for Oliveira to do uh, to do so dismally and for Lekwana to do so well shows there's something going on there. Yeah, exactly. Oliveira's best dry weather performance in MotoGP. Well, as we're also talking KTMs, then Danilo Petrucci's 10th place was his third top 10 finish of the season and probably his last before, you know, by all accounts, he departs for the Dakar, which is a whole other challenge uh, altogether. We'll have to see if we can get some time with Danilo actually and talk to him about that on the podcast, because um, as he mentioned a few weeks ago, it'll be one hell of a move, even from a PR perspective, to transfer from MotoGP tracks to that of uh, Saudi Arabia and, and the, the FIM rallies, cross-country rallies world championship to try and say it properly anyway on our show paddock pass podcast uh, there are no losers only winners um, especially to all of you dear listeners who follow us um, both on patreon of course and through social media on twitter wherever you're listening to this production we greatly appreciate your support um, as always we really encourage you to send us your feedback um, especially any questions uh, post race uh, you can find us the probably the easiest way is on twitter paddock pass pod um, and from apart from that there's not much else to say apart from uh, goodbye from me farewell from David and also Neil and we'll be checking in later in the week for the uh, Paddock Pass Podcast follow-up show for now farewell this episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler David Emmett Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler it was edited by Brian Burnett music is provided by The Liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com <laughs>